0: Hi and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris Fault, the editor of The Toolkit. Chances are if you're someone that even just occasionally glances at IndieWire, you've heard of a new film from A24 called Moonlight, which premiered last month at the Telluride Film Festival where it received near-universal praise. Review's so good that it's clear this film's going to dominate top ten lists at the end of the year, and now it looks like it it might be this year's uh, indie that makes a real awards push as well. Based on uh, Terrell McCraney's play in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue, writer director Barry Jenkins tells the story of Sharon, a young boy growing up in Miami during the, um, the, basically the crack epidemic. And to- it's told in three distinct chapters at three different stages of this character's life. And in each chapter, uh, it's played by a different actor as we watch. Uh, Sharon go from being a a grade school boy to a young man. It's a poignant film. It's really a study of masculinity and movement and how young men are shaped by the world around them. Quite frankly, it's a masterpiece, which is why I'm super happy that um, writer-director Barry Jenkins is here for the podcast on the day. The film opens here in New York and L.A. After my interview with Barry, uh, IndieWire's film editor Kate Erbland comes by and we talk about Billy Lynn's long half-time walk. This is a new film from Ang Lee, but really what was unveiled last week when the film premiered at the New York Film Festival was a completely new technology, not only in terms of how it was projected, but how it was shot. 120 frames per second, 4K, um, 3D. Uh, it's, it was hyper-reality. It's not what we're used to in watching a film. And So Kate and I discussed that and what that might mean for filmmaking. IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast is brought to you by our friends at AFI Fest, presented by Audi. The film festival takes place in the heart of Hollywood from November 10th through the 17th and includes over 100 films, nightly galas, special tributes, and much more. Opening night will feature the world premiere of Warren Beatty's latest film, Rules Don't Apply. Express passes are available at afi.com slash afifest. And now, my conversation with Barry Jenkins. And the way the characters express so clearly and so viscerally in the way they move and just in, in, in their being. Is that kind of how you saw it? Is that how you see saw the characters in terms of movement?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And some of that stuff is actually... Is it too loud here? We'll make it work. Right. Uh, yeah, that's how I, how I saw it. You know, some of that stuff is, uh, is written into the screenplay, to be honest. Uh, the idea of... Uh, 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 the corporeal uh, quality of some of the visuals, you know, just in the way these guys' shoulders sort of reflect how the world is weighing down on them. Uh, You know, it was really important, you know, in taking the coming-of-age story and telling it over uh, a shorter period of time, you know, rather than having you know, 80 beats in 80 minutes, you know, we do like, you know, three, six beats, you know, know, we tell them at a more sort of like granular level, granular pace. Uh, I felt like in doing that it would give us uh, the freedom to really watch these guys you know and i did feel like uh their posture their movement and, and more than anything else the, the look in their eyes uh it was going to carry uh some of the energy of what we were trying to convey which was this notion of masculinity of this thing that can sort of dictate uh identity um and, and that can can almost suffocate a person's true self
0: I Imagine, you know, after leaving your movie, I started thinking of masculinity in terms of the way that you know, I started Good. looking. I started Good. looking, but I started looking around and see. And I started imagining, because this is clearly something you've thought a great deal about in the way that uh, we kind of, the world kind of puts things on these boys. And I could see you almost observing and thinking about this in the world as you're writing this. Is that something? Is this something that, when you really are thinking about this topic and looking at the world?
1: Yeah, you know, I was I was trying to be really even in the writing process, and again, you know, a lot of this rested with Terrell. You know, the uh, especially the first two thirds of the film. You know, Terrell did a lot of that work, um, and, and for me, it was important about in a visual way, trying to convey to the audience. So without having to, to show them or without having to tell them, you know, what was happening, you know, we could actually show them. You know, just in the way uh, these guys moved, and really in the way they carried themselves. Um, you know, and, and then we kind of flip it because I love the way. You know, Trevante Rhodes is very broad-shoulders. He doesn't stoop at all, you know, and yet there's something so deep in his eyes that the fact that he's so straight up and so so broad, you know, it almost sort of runs counter to the fact that there's such sensitivity, you know, with such sadness in his eyes.
0: So, you know, one thing with the casting process is, and kudos for this, you didn't burden yourself with this mm-hmm. whole, like, I got three Sharones, I got three Kevins, I gotta be able to trace, like, physical traits, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you didn't go Todd Haynes, Bob Dylan, you know, he doesn't mm-hmm. switch genders, but I mean, he really seemed to be—you know—I
1: would have if I could have found someone as talented as Cate Blanchett <laughs> to play to play black in the third story. I mean, it'd have been interesting, way different film, yeah, way different. Uh, but, but still a commentary. It you know? The way you did it, <laughs> the way you did it. But Thanks, I, I'm bro. wondering,
0: I'm wondering though, what did you bring into casting? Because you weren't, are you thinking in terms of the is some some of this has to be embodied in the actor themselves?
1: Yeah, you know, it was it was all just about the feeling. We were like, you know. Do these guys feel alike? Can they feel alike? Um, in, in, in the place where we found that? You know, I, I've said this quite a bit, but I'm, I'm a big fan of Walter Murch's in the blink of an eye. It's mm-hmm. the first first book I read in film school that to me was like a really organic, concrete text about what the art of cinema, the art and craft, where they merged. And, uh, you know, watch an editor and sound designer. And so for him, it was all about the eyes being the window into the soul. And he even went so far as to, like, like in a very literal way, say, you know, when, they, when the audience is watching the actor, if they blink or if I make a cut, I am literally breaking the connection between the actor um, and the audience. And I just thought that was really, in a very concrete, simple way, sort of profound, and I thought if I can find these actors that when the audience is looking into their eyes, they see the same person, you know that'll get us to this place where you know we're charting this trajectory where you're watching the same soul go through these three permutations, these three evolutions of, of the character. Um, and again, once we really dial that in, it was like, saying, it's, like, right, it's, it's the same guy, you know And there was never any any thought of of trying to find like a 14 year old who could look 10, but also look like 28, you know, which I mean, those people exist probably, you know, but we just never even wanted to go down that path. It's interesting you bring up merch, because one of the things that um, is remarkable, is obviously
0: this is a story told in three parts with two big omissions between, Mm -hmm. you know, and and, and
1: Sharon is a different person.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, he's literally a different actor, but he's also much older
1: and Mm -hmm. and a different person and you know for me it's like eisenstein mm-hmm. you know the information is in the cut you know the and that's the thing though is that, that, just that
0: is that we are left with sharon twice at a very emotional moment mm-hmm. and you're forcing us to make a connection almost like that feeling that he has mm-hmm. at that at those very heightened moments mm-hmm. and those things that have happened to him we connect those to that
1: the first time we see him as an older person yeah
0: and it's, it's it's so much more i was thinking about it, so much more powerful that we're doing that in our head, exactly. what you're
1: doing. To me, it's like an equation, you know? It's like, uh, you know, we have them at the end of story two, the beginning of story three, you know? It's like, what's what, what was in between, you know? You subtract one from the other, you know, and you get, you know, I mean, I think it's great that the audience, if I pulled, uh, if I stood outside the theater and watched people coming out and go, so what happened between story two and story three? I might get a whole range of answers. And I think that's really, really beautiful because so long as you believe, that, that that teenager became that man you know it doesn't matter in wh- whether you feel what happened between those chapters the same thing i feel uh, happened between those chapters i think in a certain way it makes the experience participatory which is kind of awesome
0: and i think it's so important for a story like this because this is this is really you, you hear these conversations all the time about mm-hmm. the, how much does the world really influence how mm-hmm. people are raised hugely and hugely. instead of explaining it mm-hmm. instead of instead of like, We show it. it. You show yeah. it, but it, but leaving us at these heightened emotional moments mm-hmm. and realizing how damaging or how much that could define a person mm-hmm. and then boom. Well, it,
1: it, and, it and that's what it is. is. And, then, and then here's the definition or yeah. this is the result of, of that definition or the, that defining moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and again, I, I think our casting director, Yessi Ramirez for understanding that that was what we were doing, you know? that it was okay for these guys to be 80% different when we see them the next time, you know? They mm-hmm. get 20% the same, you know, but 100% in the eyes, always, 100% in the mm-hmm. eyes. Um, but, uh, and, 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 uh, you know, we're sitting in A24 right now, and these guys never balked at the idea of that, you know? Because it's, uh, it's a bit radical uh, in story form terms, um, uh, because there, there are things that we're not saying, things that we're not telling, that we're not showing. And they were okay with that, and that's that's something I actually
0: want to talk about because there's I have a list here of all these bold decisions that you made, and they really work. It's (laughs) clearly it's clearly. But I'm thinking about this in the sense that, I mean I don't know all the details, but my sense is this was shot largely like a, an independent film. It was, yeah, yeah. and not largely totally totally. (laughs) Yeah, I'm thinking about the fact that you know I'm sure you know if you didn't have an A24 with distribution already in place, mm-hmm. and you're thinking about bringing this to a festival, and certainly it would have been a festival hit, and certainly A24 very well might have bought it, but I'm thinking about that confidence that you get and that that mindset mm-hmm. in terms of really going for it. You know, I've been talking talking to your cinematographer and the colorist and talking about how much you guys went for it in terms of contrast. We're just yeah. talking about this in terms of story. I want to talk about one, mm-hmm. but like... Is that part of it, Mm -hmm. in your second feature,
1: to have something, is to... You know, I wasn't even thinking about it as like the second feature or things like that, but but I was thinking, you know, these people really believe in the story that we're telling, and they believe in the form uh, that we're telling it in. And so, if I had a decision that was risky or bold, I didn't have to second guess myself because I wasn't, ex- I wasn't expecting anyone to second guess me, you know, which is a really liberating uh, process. You know, it gave us the freedom to go, you know what, we're going to put the camera in the water. We're going to put the camera in the water and we're going to put it at the horizon. And so, like, 40% of this footage, 50% of this footage is going to be unusable because we can't control the ocean, but we're going to get it in another 50%. I think making decisions like that, um, I did feel more empowered uh, because these guys. Uh, had my back, and and it's it's weird. It was something um, I didn't expect to have. You know, you know the other element of it too was there was no rush. You know, we shot this movie in uh, October, which for me was better for the light in Miami and the weather in Miami. But that meant we had no chance to take it to Sundance. You know, mm-hmm. or we'd have to wait a whole cycle to take it to Sundance. And they were just fully on board with that. They were like, no, you make the movie when you feel it's the best time to make the movie. Um, so many people get stuck in that cycle of shooting in the summer and then like quickly editing the Yeah, film. which, which it, it, it's a cycle, but, but it's necessary. You know, Sundance is a great platform uh, for a feature film, and particularly for a feature film uh, with, this, uh, with this story, the story form. But then again, you know, we started at Telluride and typically a movie like this in American Indie, you know, if this milieu doesn't start at Right. but look, we had an amazing, amazing reception there though. And so I guess until you try things, you know, you shouldn't say that they aren't, you know, they aren't done. You know, it's just that people aren't doing them.
0: I want to go back to story and mm-hmm. kind of you placing the audience in, in very key places mm-hmm. and thinking about your structure. And I don't want to ruin mm-hmm. something here, but mm-hmm. you know, a character that plays a major part in the first story, um, it, it, we're not quite sure at the beginning of the second mm-hmm. story what happened mm-hmm. to them. and it, mm-hmm. it's, it's disorienting.
1: And, and, and I wanted it to be as disorienting for the audience as it is for Sharon. You know, everything in this film, from the color to the sound, you know, it's filtered through the characters, from the character out, not from mm-hmm. the world or the theme in. And, uh, and the, our treatment of that character, it was completely 1,000%. Um, meant to have the audience experience what uh, what Sharon experiences
0: because he's such a comfort and such a, a rock for Austin Sharon in the first story. I,
1: I know, I know, and and, and 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 you know, and the actor gives an amazing. I feel like we're not talking about yeah. <laughs> it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an amazing,
0: it's an amazing performance. It's a yeah. father figure, and and yeah. it's just it's. And then even just the fact that we have to piece. It, so, there's so much brilliant little details in the storytelling that, are... even the fact that. We, it's kind of a bold decision even that we just have to like piece this together. Mm -hmm. It's not like this definitive, like what happened, right? Yeah,
1: Yeah. and and, and again, I I think that when these kids in these communities experience these things and they do all the time, it's the same thing. What happened? Why did this happen? How did this happen, you know? And there's usually no rhyme or reason and no concrete or no succinct uh, explanation and the audience should feel that, you know? Mm -hmm. Again, it's meant to be an immersive uh, experience.
0: It, the first two stories, I, I, I would have said this is a great film. This is, mm-hmm. this is a remarkable work. Uh, the, the third story is really brings this to like a whole different mm-hmm. level for me. And once again, I don't I want to talk vaguely here, but you give us a sense that this character, there's a path for hope, mm-hmm. and it's there. Mm-hmm. And the obstacle is himself. Yeah. And, of course, that's what happens to you and I every day in mm-hmm. life, of mm-hmm. course. But in terms of story, you know, that is hard. And I'm here on the edge of my seat in that third story. Mm-hmm. Just please, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. F- f- mm-hmm. do this for yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and, and But to not have that traditional conflict, that traditional thing that's in his path, mm-hmm. and it just being himself, that is a... a That only, I have to imagine that's something where we have to be so grounded in him and so understanding of what the internal struggle is with him.
1: Well, and and the idea was, I feel like there's not two movies, but there's one movie that runs like the first 80, 85, 90 minutes. And then once he pulls up, you know, and he puts on that shirt and that doorbell rings, Mm -hmm. it's another movie, you know? And, And I think we had to earn the right to do that. Um, to have this, this, this almost non-story form, you know, this non-obstacle, or this just purely internal obstacle. Um, but I think because, as you said, that people get, the audience is invested in the character that that obstacle is almost like it's like the the, the worst obstacle you could possibly create, you know, mm-hmm. because it's so movable if he will decide to move it. Um, and uh, and and it's 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 heartening to hear to hear you say that because you know as a as a portrait or a character study. You know the idea that that character is essentially what I'm hearing becomes the most important thing becomes the thing that that makes it possible to sublimate some of the things we're dealing with you know it's just it's amazing you know it's it's uh, incredibly rewarding here
0: and the thing is is that I just think the normal decision here for something that's such an internal motion would be to find some kind of external story like you yeah. know have some element of his past there or something mm-hmm. he's got to avoid or something and it's just it's it The fact that you have slow cooked this with us to him to this point that Mm -hmm. we can understand that that little Sharon is still inside. Yeah, it's yeah, and and you his eyes too. You can see it in that big. I was gonna say, and
1: gives such a an awesome performance that, despite the fact that he's become so fortified, <laughs> uh, you know, he's still uh, he's still in there. And also too, it's sort of like a you know the, the movie. There's this commentary on you know particularly the way we deal with time, you know how the world is affecting these characters, you know especially and in particular how the how the world's affecting them when we don't see them because in between the stories, you know, we're not with them. Um, and so to get to a point where now we're observing this person, and the only thing that's sort of like that's w- that's willing against them is is their actual selves. It's a commentary on now we're going to remove the world, the outside world from the equation, and it's just two people sitting across from one another, and the one person is just creating space. And it's up to the other, our main character, to decide you know what he is going to do, who he's going to be.
0: Talk to me a little bit about the music in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really unique. Um, it at times is very beautiful, very mm-hmm. melodic, mm-hmm. and then at times it's very sharply disorienting. Mm-hmm. And it feels, and, and a lot of times those moments are very much, you know, kind of butted right up against yeah. each other. Um, it's a really. Um, and I, I went back and watched uh, Melancholy mm-hmm. last week, and you, do, you, you you can see the seeds of you starting to play with music
1: yeah, there. Yeah. But what, what is that approach? What are you, it's very unique. Yeah, you know, in, in, in this film, again, everything starts with Chiron. Uh, um, it's funny, you mentioned the idea of the, the music sometimes being very beautiful, I mean, and then other times being very, I don't know, or dark or aggressive. The beauty of it is we're using the same elements, you know? Uh, as the movie goes on, there's a style of music that I love called Chopped and Screwed where it's like this hip-hop where you slow the music down and you lower the pitch. It's really big in Houston. Um, it's like a southern,
0: it's kind of a big southern. It's very
1: southern, it's a, but, but, but it's niche. I mean, like, there's not, like, like maybe like 8% of hip-hop lovers love uh, Chopped and Screwed. Um, and, uh, and you slow it down, and, and what happens is the yearning in the music, you know, because there is yearning in hip-hop, you can actually hear the lyrics. They're coming at you slower. The yearning to be rise to the top despite the fact that it's become because it's deeper, much more masculine. And so what Nick and I decided to do was to take this orchestral score, which is very lush and beautiful in the early goings of the film.
0: So he did he did a full kind of orchestral score, full orchestral
1: score, right. and then we started taking elements of it and we chopped and screwed those. And so sometimes when you hear like this very beautiful music, it comes back later, but it's almost unrecognizable because now it's filtered through this hyper masculine version of hip hop called Chopped and Screwed. Same instruments, same players, but now it's like really, really guttural. And so one of, the, one of my favorite examples of that is, in the very beginning of the film, or in the very beginning of Story 2, Chiron is coming out of the school and the, his theme is playing. Do, 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 a very simple song. Uh, and then when the fight happens, when he's walking out of the cafeteria, you hear this, roll yeah. It's the same song, but it's Chopped and Screwed. Extreme, extremely chopped and screwed. It's taken on a whole different meaning and, and sort of like, like tone and soul. And, uh, and it was, we wanted to find a way to one, fuse the sort of like orchestral art house aesthetics with what I feel like is uh, the, the culture, this, hop, this, this chopped and screwed sort of music that I, that I grew up with. But also too, to reflect how this beautiful kid, you know, because the world is pressuring him to take on these trappings of, uh, of masculinity, how even that beauty is being corrupted and corroded you know, and coarsened you know, into this other sort of like feeling. You know? And I think that's what Nick does with the music as the film goes on.
0: Beauty is such a big part of this. Mm-hmm. This is not a miserableist film. No. I mean, it's a realistic film. You can feel out the pain of what's mm-hmm. going on with this kid. But uh, there's also, um, I feel like the way you just described your music is something I also felt in the images and in the cinematography. Mm-hmm. You really kind of went for it there, too, in both catching... Like some of this like bright contrast of Miami, but yeah. also like this beauty of Miami, and mm-hmm. there's like this, mm-hmm. there's like that combination of of finding some realism and some harshness. Yeah, yeah.
1: You, you know, it, to me, it's a tension that's inherent uh, in the environment. You know, you know the, the the projects that we that we film in the second story. It's a place called Liberty Square, but we call it the Polk and Beans. Growing up, it's where uh, Paula and Sharon live in story two. It's fucking beautiful. I mean, it's like these beautiful pastels, these like pinks and oranges and like these blues and greens the grass is so rich because it rains so all you the time. weren't painting
0: walls you were just finding that those walls are just from your child because there's exactly. so much there's so much beautiful color
1: exactly and and, and 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 even and when you're in that project even though you're like you couldn't be further removed from the glitz of south beach mm-hmm. you can smell the ocean and so for terrell and i we wanted to embrace the tension you know of that beauty mm-hmm you know, juxtapose with the very dark things uh, that are happening to the characters in the story and that happen to us. And, and it's funny because someone asked me, you know, you know, were you ever afraid that you were making a film that was visually too pretty and too lush because the subject matter is so heavy? And I thought, no, it would have been almost immoral to try to, to subdue the beauty of the world we grew up in, you know, just to service what we think are the aesthetic sort of like trappings of a neorealist, you know, or a miserableist tale. You know, we didn't want to do that. Everyone at this juxtaposition, Terrell calls Miami a beautiful nightmare, and I think what we've done in places, because I do think there's hope in the film, but we've painted this this nightmare in beautiful tones, you know? It is. It's a beautiful, beautiful film.
0: Thank you so much for making it. It, it meant a lot to me, and it's meant a lot to a lot of people.
1: Oh, thank you, man. Much so, appreciated. Right, best of luck with it. Cool. Thanks, Dave. Uh,
0: Moonlight opens um, today. It's uh, we're, This is going up on Friday, so mm-hmm. it opens up today in New York and L.A., and slowly it's going to get bigger and bigger. and. Uh, uh, if you've been reading IndieWire, there's a lot of Oscar buzz around it, too, so it's probably going to be playing for
1: for a while. Hey, we hope so, yeah, <laughs> right? We hope so. Thanks a lot,
0: <laughs> Last Friday night at the New York Film Festival, Ang Lee's, Billy Lynn's, Long Halftime Walk premiered. Normally when a uh, new Ang Lee movie comes out, especially one with an awards angle, it's a pretty big deal uh, to premiere and for all the critics, for everybody to see it. But really what was unveiled uh, on Friday night was a completely new way of filming. Uh, Billy Lynn was shot at 120 frames per second, uh, very high frame, right? The only other time that's ever really been tried is The Hobbit at 48 frames per second. And also it was shot with two cameras in stereo in 3D with a, a projector that is was, I mean, I feel like you could have uh, done one of the World Trade Center beams with that thing. It was so strong. And it was a completely different viewing experience. Uh, Kate Erbland, the film editor of IndieWire, was there with me. Uh, Kate, I don't think I ever realized how much, I mean, I obviously knew 24 frames per second was a big deal. I don't think I realized how much that had defined my cinema going experience.
2: I mean, I think I was actually really worried at first because when I saw The Hobbit in 48 frames per second, I really didn't like it and it made me feel kind of sick and it took a long time for me to adjust. It took me less time to adjust but it's very striking and it's almost too crisp and to the point that it looks sort of the opposite of (laughs) as intended. It looks cheap. It doesn't look expensive because we're so used to seeing a higher frame rate on television so I think your mind automatically thinks I'm watching something that's on sort of a smaller scale when it's the largest scale that it could possibly be.
0: Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how, if we watch movies, more movies like this, if we will get used to this, um, because it is just so striking. But then there's also just this aspect of um, the actual filmmaking and the performances are so different. I mean, I mean, I feel like for the first time I ever saw. I saw Kristen Stewart act. <laughs> I felt like I, it was the first time I think I ever saw her act. I mean, what did you what did you think about like also the performances when you were seeing on screen?
2: Well, actually, on Friday morning, Ang Lee did a breakfast with some select members of press, and he talked a lot about this. And he specifically talked about what he needed from his actors to make this work. And the thing that he emphasized was because you're so close and because you can see everything, his actors can't act. And so he had to sort of remove any kind of ticks. like anything that they're used to doing they couldn't do anymore and I think for people who maybe don't think Kristen Stewart is a good actress which that seems to be turning around these days they're going to be surprised by that but I think the real standout is the kid who plays Billy Lynn this kid Joe Alwyn who it's his first movie he left theater school to go and do it and you do get the sense that he's not acting he really is Billy Lynn whereas with some of the other performers some of that artifice still kind of creeps in there and it's very striking
0: I mean yeah I mean I'm drinking the Kirsten Stewart Kool Aid (laughs) hardcore right now. So my point was more uh, out of admiration. Was that it's just that um, I feel like all those things that they do. You know, she has. She's a just using one example. She's got this backstory. She's kind of has this. um, She's kind of tortured throughout this movie and has has some nervous energy. And she does some kind of very normal things. Some she got a little bit of a sway. You got. She's doing a little something with her hands. Kind of kind of kind of projecting this. And suddenly, and things that she would do in any other movie and we wouldn't think twice about it. Right. And I'm just noticing these mannerisms. Whereas I, I, I and, and, and Chris Tucker is uh, movie trope, you know, the <laughs> nonstop right. talking agent, completely self-aware. We've seen this a million times. Yeah. I mean, Chris Tucker could do this in his sleep, but he's just rapid talking. And you're sitting there and it's like, you're watching him perform. Like I could see him do that on the stage. I wouldn't think twice about it, but it's like it's, it's suddenly I'm feeling all this. And you're right, the one person that I feel like I really felt natural was, was the lead, the yeah. kid. I
2: know. mean, I think, God, who's is it Garrett Hedlund? Yeah, yeah. I always forget who's who. There's some moments where Garrett Hedlund's really great in it, and there's some moments where maybe not so much, and I don't think that that would have been so clear if this was in a regular frame rate. I think it would have been a pretty solid performance from him, but when you take away the ability to do the sort of stuff that they're used to, do, to doing on screen, It's, there's some little, there's some awkwardness. I
0: think, you had said something that really struck with me. It's like you can't put anything fake in front of the camera. It's like, this is like a microscope.
2: I mean, they're still like working out how to put makeup on these characters. Like they didn't do any kind of like stage makeup for these people. And you know, that's, I actually thought about like what kind of lint roller situation (laughs) did they have? Because you would see it and I think it would be distracting.
0: Yeah, I was talking, I talked to, um, for a piece that went up today, Uh, The great production designer Mark Friedberg, uh, who's worked with Ang Lee for a while, worked with a lot of directors, and he was even just talking about the way ways that all their like little cheats of like how to make a wall look old, (laughs) and it was just like he can't. It's like he he was so stunned, and they did two months of tests and trying to figure out even from a filmmaking standpoint how to do this. And I mean, if you look at the roster, I mean Ang Lee himself is, is, I mean. He's such a visceral director. I mean, you might not love him. I, I, I'm a fan, I'm not a huge fan, but like, certainly he can tell a story and get you involved yes. and have a lot of visceral images. And you know, he's just got a roster of like all-stars working for him, including the cast and behind the camera. And they had like three, four months prepping for this, shooting tests. And I think the thing that I realized more than anything is, is that this is such a different way of filming that even these incredible craftsmen it's gonna take them a little while to, to figure it out.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's gonna take a little while for them to figure out how to do it and for us to figure out how to watch it. I mean, one of my thoughts after I first saw it was, I don't know, maybe you have to learn how to watch this. Maybe you need to watch this sort of thing as your standard. I think for most people, it's always gonna feel different. And for some people, that's not necessarily a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think there's also something about, the, did, did the filmmaking sometimes feel a little flat to you? Yes. Yeah. Weirdly. yeah. Weirdly.
0: And this is a guy who did Crouching Tiger. Right. So it's like there's also just that element of like everything is so in focus. And I mean, it, it, it wasn't clear that that what to do with motion or what to do with the frame and and the parts. You know, for me, the two parts where the format I was really, I was kind of drawn in was the long halftime walk. <laughs> and and, and then, to, and to what's a, it's like a kind of like, it's a Thanksgiving football game. So it's kind of it's like a Super Bowl. S- it was a Super Bowl. Yeah.
2: Oh, I thought it was Thanksgiving. No, I think it's.
0: Oh, it, way, it's a it, big, is, it, it is
2: the Super Bowl. It's a big yeah. football
0: game, and it's a big halftime <laughs> thing. Beyonce's there. I guess you're right. Beyonce probably only does Super Bowl. She doesn't do the thing. <laughs> it's not game. even
2: really Beyonce. <laughs> yeah.
0: and, but it's just like, but in those scenes, there was so much action, foreground, background, so much color, so right. much going on, and and for the first time, the filmmaking felt really dynamic to me in that in those moments. Well,
2: I mean, I think when. Aang was talking about this at the breakfast, there was a lot about how it needs to be hyper real because you're seeing this from Billy Lynn's perspective and he's someone who's been through this horrible traumatic situation mm-hmm. and then he's thrown into this and everything is just, there's just too much to process. And so when you're, at, when you're in the walk you're doing it from Billy Lynn's perspective and it is too much to process. It's overwhelming but it absolutely works and in some of the big uh, war scenes it's the same way.
0: I think the real hope in talking to a few people that worked on the movie is that those actors are so present and that once they figure out how to act for this new medium that our connection to them will be so direct mm-hmm. and and being able to understand instinct and they say well you know in cinema we, a certain glance or a look can certainly tell you emotion but I think the idea is to build like a, a new relationship with with the actors which sounds yeah. interesting it sounds like I could see something like that happen but it I think the thing that is is that that surprised me is just is that this is so different that it it felt to me a little bit like, I don't know if, you you know, in in the 20s silent film got so beautiful and lyrical, and then all of a sudden sound came in and they didn't know what to do with it. And it just like, you could, there's also those funny things where they're putting the mic in the flowers and no one knows how to move, but there was this like technical thing that they had to adjust. And coming off how much of a radical change that felt like sound was like a really bad idea. Right. <laughs> and, and I feel like that's an extreme example. This film isn't quite that dramatic with Switch, but you realize that even the great technicians and the great filmmakers and the great actors are working in this, this is gonna take yeah. some time. And I think the question really becomes, that means more movies being made this way.
2: But I mean, I wonder how much of that depends on how well Billy Lynn does at the box office. Like if it doesn't do very well, I mean, maybe Sony will still want to do stuff in this frame rate because they've spent so much money getting this ready. But are other studios going to be willing to do the same thing? It's a lot of money to put out, and I think that for some people, um, it's it's a scary thing to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, we only have the reaction of all our New York friends that right. were there <laughs> and the critics, but I mean, it was pretty it was pretty resounding in terms of like how jarring of an experience yeah. it was, and I. I, I it does, I, I, like you said, I just wonder if we'll get used to it. And But I, I think that's a matter of, you know, if this film is an, an awards play, if it's not a big thing, is Sony going to want to go do the Muhammad Ali right. a, Lee movie this way? I
2: mean, even when The Hobbit came out, like, obviously the Hobbit movies were hugely successful because mm-hmm. they're Hobbit movies, but like, no one really talked about that frame rate right. again.
0: Yeah. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. It's definitely new. Kate, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.